really what it comes down to is understanding some of the stories of the individual soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines that have sacrificed. Realize the kind of attributes they bring that only makes the whole team better. I served in uniform not because I was underprivileged, uh, rather it was because of conviction of love of country and the American way of life. If I hadn't gone through a lot of the traumatic things in Iraq, Afghanistan, just even at home, probably would not have made it through that night. No, somebody didn't need me, but somebody just took the time to care. For me, the most memorable events I've ever seen involved the United States military. No matter where they were called upon, no matter where their duties would take them, they acted swiftly, without any hesitation, or mental reservations to answer our nation's call to action. Welcome back to this episode of the Patriot Podcast. I'm Chris Obermeyer, and I have the privilege of being joined today by Evan Preparis to talk about his time in the U.S. Army Special Forces. In part three, we'll discuss Evan's hobbies outside of the military and how he keeps himself busy in his free time. It's very interesting to learn about how his military training surfaces in so many aspects of his life and is a toolkit he always has with him for guidance on leadership, problem solving, and perseverance. With that, let's jump right in and learn more about Evan's incredible story. During the introduction, we spoke about you, know, you have a couple hobbies that you're into also. So I thought it was appropriate now that we kind of dive into that a little bit more. So maybe if you could share with us some of your interests and hobbies that you have going on right now. So my primary sport is something called obstacle course racing. So it's, if you're familiar with Spartan or Tough Mudder, you essentially run on a trail and you climb over walls and mud crawls and mud pits and jump from heights and do monkey bars and stuff like that. Except I, I specialize in what's called ultra distance obstacle course racing. So the races are typically a five mile loop, about 20 to 25 obstacles. And they say go, and whoever does the most loops wins. So my, I, get, I get really good between like five and 24 hours <laughs> is when I get really good. I think 12 hours is my, is my, my pinnacle. I think that's like my okay. best, best distance. Yeah, so talking about SF and some of the crazy opportunities, I had an opportunity to be an intern at Under Armour in, ba in Baltimore. Wow. I, I had gone to school in Baltimore, so I, I was familiar with the area. So I had some like rapport building there with special operations. We work with a lot of civilians sometimes, so they saw it as like a, uh, an exchange opportunity. So oh. we would get some like civilian business level skills, um, and they would get some input about security, personal and digital security from our guys. Neat. So we did this exchange program. I went there for three weeks, and they treated me like they treated me like I was a like a special guest, and I was like in meetings with like the CEO and COO. Oh wow! And uh, I sat through like a meeting with Cam Newton, who I didn't oh. even. Funny, I don't, I don't follow many sports. I didn't even know who he was. They're like, Cam Newton's coming. And I was like, just staring. They're like, do you not know who Cam Newton is? And I was like, he plays sports? And they're like, oh, my God. It's like, this is embarrassing. Yeah, so I, I stepped in a meeting with him. We went to, like, like, a party at Kevin Plank's house, the CEO. And, they like, George St. Pierre was there. I didn't talk to him, but I saw him, like, from across the room. And uh, it was just, like, a crazy experience. Wow. From that... One, they were sponsoring Tough Mudder at the time, who had just put on their, they were about to put on their third 24-hour race. Their, so the third ultra-distance obstacle course race ever, uh, called World's Toughest Mudder. Okay. I was like, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd bounced around a lot of sports. Again, I wasn't very good, 
And when I was preparing for special forces, I would like, I do some strength training stuff, like powerlifting, and then I would do like, because for special forces, a lot of it is endurance based. So I do like marathon running and triathlon. And I was never, never good. Hmm. I wasn't fast. So I was like, well, if I run long, that's kind of impressive. So I'll just kind of do that. And it, I just slid down this slippery slope of endurance sports. As I was looking at all these sports, I noticed the first couple of years of every sport, the competition is never as high as it is five, 10 years later. Okay. So there's this new sport called obstacle course racing. And I was like, I can do that. Like, I'm relatively fit. I've done marathons, I've done triathlons. So I was like, we can do this. And I was like, and it's brand new. Like, I'm going to go there and I'll put a check mark on my resume for uh, endurance sports and then move on to something else. So because Under Armour was sponsoring Tough Mudder, we did a, two te two, a team of two military and two Under Armour dudes, and we were going to the World's Toughest Mudder, and we were going to crush oh, it was wow. the plan. I ended up being in a special operations course, so I couldn't go. So two, my, I had two friends go, and the two Under Armour guys went. Oh. Fast forward a year, we're going to do it again. Everyone drops out, and just, just me. So now I'm doing the 24-hour race by myself oh. as a solo. And I was like, okay. Um, so I did, I went there and I did really well for my first year. Uh, I thought I was going to finish like, you know, you know, around the 100th place at, or 60th ish, somewhere in there, because I'd done a couple of other OCRs, uh, obstacle course races at a high level. And that's, I typically fed, finished in like 60 or 70th place. And I'm like 18 hours into this event. And the girl next to me is like, you're doing great. And I was like, I'm really not. I'm just trying to survive at this point. And she's like, no, you're in like. 15th place and I was like 15th I'm in 15th place at the world championship and I was like what am I doing get back on the course right and it was it was a crazy year because it was in at the, at the time it was in Las Vegas so out in the desert of Las Vegas and there was this windstorm that was literally blowing obstacles over and I was like there is no way they're gonna cancel they're gonna keep this event going they're gonna cancel it I've been in military training we cancel when things get too dangerous yeah right because they otherwise we got to pay for your you know health insurance and fix you back up after we break you so i was like there's no way gonna keep this going and they kept it going all night the uh specifically that race the 24-hour world's toughest mudder uh it's typically held in november um typically in the southern part of the united states and you're going in and out of water the entire time wow. so it gets so cold you have to wear a wetsuit to survive hmm. i'm saying like you have you will get hypothermia 100 percent if you do not wear a wetsuit wow. um so i've i've done that race i think uh eight times at this point and um, I usually run around 90 miles uh, with obstacles over 24 hours, uh, wearing a wetsuit for a good portion of it. Uh, and it is painful, but also a lot of fun. I'm sure. So you, you spoke about being 15th. Yeah. So what's the average number of participants typically for one of these races? So the, the World Championship, uh, it's typically anywhere between 1,000 and uh, 1,600 people. Wow. For the world championships, the smaller ones, it could be anywhere from, I mean, I've been in races with like six people. It spans the spectrum, right? So there's, there's big races with prize money, uh, which typically draw a larger crowd, and the, the bigger brands will draw a larger crowd. And there's also a lot of local brands um, that have smaller crowds, and sometimes you'll just get a handful of people. So wow. um, my personal point of pride for endurance obstacle course racing is like I'm always, I'm always near the top. You give me six 16 or 16 160 or 1600 people i'm gonna be up i'm gonna be up there near the top that's and awesome it, a lot of it comes from again back to my my military specialty mm -hmm. planning special operations planning right mm -hmm. because so many things can go wrong over 24 hours or 12 hours or six hours like you need to be prepared for all these contingencies you need to have good problem solving skills because you know if the, the set a bunch of set of monkey bars example 
But depending on what the last obstacle was, sometimes your hands are wet. So you got to figure out how do I kind of try dry them off before I get to the next obstacle. Which lane on the obstacle is going to be the most dry? Hmm. Probably the one furthest away from the natural line of drift. So I'll go to that okay. lane. Uh, obstacles are typically wet earlier in the night when people are trying and failing, and as the day goes on, uh, people stop trying, so they dry out. So it actually gets easier at some points, even oh, wow. though you're more fatigued because you run another 15, 20 miles. Um, so there's a lot of nuance in there um, that I took from the military, some that contingency planning, and then that just that special operations mindset of like quitting is just, it's not an option, right? You have three options every time I cross the line. I can speed up, I can slow down, or I can maintain the same pace. Those are the three options. Mm-hmm. Quitting is not on there. If I showed up, I'm, we're going. Yeah. Um, you know, I think people who talk about quitting a lot, sometimes they're trying to convince themselves that they, they don't want to quit. They're vocalizing it to try to like get support, right? Like you don't go, I don't go into my boss's office every day and be like, not gonna key your car today. And he's like, were you thinking about keying my car? You're like, no, but I'm not gonna do it, right? It's just not an option, right? right? So I don't talk about quitting because it's just, it's just not one of the options when I show up to one of these races. Absolutely. There are times when I, you know, I'm, I'm not doing well and uh, the fact that I stayed on the course puts me in a much higher placement even though I didn't feel good, mm-hmm. and uh, I just kind of persisted to the end. And a lot of that has to do with the military of like always driving on to the objective, regardless of what the, what's going on. Sure. Now, with those courses, are there different, like per um, competition, are there different obstacles for each competition, different styles? Yeah. So it's, do they let you know that ahead of time? Do you have some intel, or is it like surprise, get after it? <laughs> Yes, all. Like, yes, all. It's a mix, right? So there, most brands have like a staple, like a, a vault of obstacles, I'll call them, like a list of obstacles that are, they'll typically use. So if you've done that brand before, it's probably going to be a lot of the same similar obstacles. Uh, but, but at the same time, especially the bigger brands, like Spartan and Tough Mudder have their list of obstacles that they tend to use. The smaller brands, they're tends, because they're operated by one to five people sometimes, whatever they're feeling that day, they can... Mm. Like you're, they're building a course and they're like, oh, this looks like an interesting stream crossing with a, you know, jump off at the end and then they can just do whatever. So the variability is really cool. And it also makes it really interesting, I think, from a uh, fan slash spectator slash athlete is it really could be anyone's day. Um, The shorter races, there's a a brand called Conquer the Gauntlet that I used to represent for several years. Brands like them and at the World Championships for the shorter distances, it's, it's called mandatory obstacle completion. So you get a wristband, and if you do all the obstacles, you keep your wristband. If you fail an obstacle, they cut your wristband. Oh. And if you lose your wristband, now you go below everyone who finished with their wristband. Wow. Right? So you could be in first place and be 100 feet from the finish and get stuck at an obstacle. Oh. And now you go from first to 100th, mm. right? Uh, wow. the, the endurance ones, the one I do... Uh, typically, if you fail an obstacle, there's a penalty. Sometimes it's running a more distance. Sometimes it's carrying a sandbag. Okay. Sometimes Tough Mudder likes to be a little silly. So sometimes they have like that bouncy ball and you like hop down a trail, which is like if you ran 60 miles and someone asks you to bounce on the bouncy ball is awful because you're essentially in like a deep squat, <laughs> right. you know, and, and you look ridiculous also. So it's kind of funny. I think that's what makes the sport interesting. So there's so much variability. Yeah. Now, what's, is there one race that stands out over the others as far as just the most extreme obstacles 
So as far as uh, technical difficulty, I would say it's Conquer the Gauntlet. Um, so they have a, the, I just did their race two weeks ago. They have an obstacle that is a pegboard, okay. right? So you, you, your feet are on, on like wooden blocks and you've got two pegs in your hands and you go out about five feet and then it's about 16 feet where your legs are just dangling. Oh. So you're going all with your arms moving these pegs over. Um, I would say that's probably the hardest obstacle in our sport. And I, I was, again, I was in seventh, I was something in like 17th place two weeks ago. Got up to that obstacle, there's a whole bunch of people stuck. I come out in seventh, and then I ran, ran three people down and finished in fourth. Wow. Which was, they, they did prize money top five for that one, so amazing. I finished in the money. Um, but again, I, I was having a bad day. My legs felt heavy, I was, um, and I could have I walked it. Could have been like, oh, this is not my day. Mm -hmm. But I just, you know, I was like, well, we'll see what happens. There's still obstacles up there. So some of them are a little more, I call it Ninja Warrior-y. Mm -hmm. Like, they're a little more technical. You need more grip uh -huh. strength. Uh, brands like Savage Race are another, it's a popular brand that has a lot of more technical obstacles. And then their Spartan and Tough Mudder have some of the conditions based that are very tough. So Spartan has some races that you will run up and down a mountain for almost the entire length of the race. So the terrain is really what beats you up. Wow. World's toughest motor, that 24 hour run, the weather honestly is what really does you in. It's just getting in and out of water, including the, one of the obstacles is like an ice bath. You like jump into ice water oh, wow. and climb out. Um, and just being cold and wet and muddy for like 24 hours, it, I get sick every year. Every year when I go, my wife's like, okay, well, you're gonna be useless for the next week. Um, you're also gonna fall asleep on the floor because my kids wanna play. Yep. And I'll be like, well, I'm just gonna sit here and play on the floor. And then I'm out, like blacked out on the floor. Like <laughs> yeah, a couple minutes later. My wife's like, well, this is, this is not helpful. Um, yeah, those are the two of us extreme. Um, sure. And then there's, but at the same time, there's a lot of entry level stuff where, right, I race competitively. I'm trying to win uh, prizes, prize money, results are important to me. I make up, I'd say, 5 to 10% of the sport. 90% wow. of the people show up, they like drink a beer beforehand. <laughs> Sometimes they drink a beer during the race, which you're not supposed to do. Uh, <laughs> they drink a beer after, but like it's mostly a social event. Oh, wow. People do bachelor parties, bachelorette parties. Oh, huh you'll see people who are extremely overweight come out and do some of these courses and walk almost the entire thing. My dad's in his early 70s. He did a, he's done a Tough Mudder 5K with me. Neat. Right? So um, it's really for everyone. The, if you want to get into the competitive side, that's a, it's, you know, it's pretty niche, uh, but it's a different, different segment of the same thing. Mm -hmm. And th without that 90%, we can't have a sport. Sure. There's not enough money in incoming. So. Mm -hmm. Um, we need all those people in order to have the competitive side of the sport. Yeah, that makes sense. So going back to that pegboard yeah. obstacle. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm really inquisitive about this. What's the strategy and technique? So when you're able to secure your feet, okay, you're good, right? Right, yeah, easy. But once you get out there for the remainder, what's, what are the tricks of the trade? How do you do it? It's sports specificity plays a big role. So you need to practice doing pegboards. Like I can... You can do a, some of those movements. It's not the same as when you actually have the pegs. The other thing that makes it tricky is a normal pegboard, I jam the pegs in and it, and it hits the wall. Okay. So if, I, if you have a, a pegboard in your gym, you click and it locks it in. Mm -hmm. These pegboard, the hole goes all the way through. Oh. So if you put it in too deep, you'll have trouble getting it out. If you don't put it in sh deep enough, it might fall out. So the two techniques I use, and I've got a bunch of YouTube videos if, anyone, if anyone's like really interested in like the nuances of the techniques, but um, I go sideways where I'm basically, I'm expanding my arms and then I'm bringing them in close, expanding them, bringing them in close. 
Uh, there are other people who call it the monkey swing technique, where you, you stick the peg in and you swing forward, huh. and you lock it in, and you swing forward. If you can do that, that technique, that's a lot faster. My shoulders, due to some army stuff, are not the best. <laughs> so when I do that swing, I feel like pain all through my oh. shoulders. So I go sideways, where I have a little more control, but it's a little bit slower and a little more safer, because it's a lot easier for me to get a, pe a peg in when my arms are here than when I'm on like a wild swing. Because if you miss, now I'm swinging from one arm, and one arm's not very strong. Versus if I miss this, a lot of times, you don't need to be able to do a one-arm pull-up, but if you can do, if you can just build the tension, you can adjust and get the peg in. And then it's about efficiency and kind of staying calm and not getting too uh, overzealous. Because as you get towards the end, people will fall off. Because like, yeah. they'll be like, oh, there's the foothold. But it's like, eh, maybe you should move the peg one more time before oh, you. So, and they have, like, they have other things, spinning monkey bar, like monkey bars that go up and down that spin. Uh, it's something called Stairway to Heaven. It's basically like a, two ladders that are leaning against each other, and you go on the underside. Right? So you climb okay. and then climb back down. They've got like things you go, you know, tubes you go through, and uh, rigs are another really popular thing. So essentially, it's trussing with various handholds, and sometimes it's very easy, just like all rings, and you just kind of go across sideways. Other times it's very technical, so it'll be like a nunchuck, a bunch of bungee cords, um, the weird shaped hold, UFOs, pumpkins. <laughs> like I mean, there's also these weird shaped holds that they can throw on there to really make it challenging. So there are rigs that are harder than the pegboard obstacle. Uh, but as a general rule, the pegboard obstacle is the hardest one wow. compared to like the, a rig. So do you have one that you just like, oh my gosh, I don't want to do this? Like the one that's just so daunting, you're like, oh, here we go again. Uh, it's usually, it, it changes per race and per conditioning, what, depending on how I'm feeling, right? Like if I'm tired, you know, obviously doing something like pe the pegboard one will be exhausting. World's Toughest Mudder, the 24-hour one, is known for, when it was in Vegas, for three years, four years? four years uh they had a cliff jump in the middle of the race oh. so you'd get up like oh, i've ran 60 miles i'm gonna jump off this 35 foot cliff now into water and then you climb out it's so like mentally that is that's a challenge for sure. a lot of people Thir if anyone's not hasn't jumped from 35 feet it's so long that when you jump you'll be like why am i still falling i remember <laughs> thinking that as oh, i was falling no. like because you're used to jumping and you hit the water right away nah. so that's what i remember thinking as i, I fell down um, they, they had that obstacle for a couple years. Tough Mudder as a brand, they like to focus on your fears, which is why I think a lot of people like that brand, mm. because you get a feeling of accomplishment after. So if you're claustrophobic, they're going to make you go through tunnels. They make everyone go through all these. But if you're mm -hmm. claustrophobic, it'll test your you know, fear of closed spaces. Uh, they have hanging electricity wires at the end that people oh. run through. You can crawl under them if you're careful and usually get through. Uh, they have ice baths, right? They've got um, upper body obstacles. They've got a lot of mud. They've got a lot of uh, um, heavy carries and stuff like that. So they'll test whatever you're afraid of. They kind of push on that fear of heights with like the, the jump, fear of water. Most of the water's color, so you can't see the bottom. Hmm. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it plays on your fears, and I, which is one of the reasons I think people get a really good feeling of accomplishment when they cross the finish line, whether you ran trying to win like me or you went out there and you're just like, hey, I'm just having a good time. We're drinking beers that you're not supposed to drink on the course, <laughs> but I'm doing it anyway. Yeah, that's a broad spectrum it is. of it's, participation. It is. It's wild. Yeah. And it's also, what I, the other thing, so as a competitive guy, and I think it was just, the community thinks this is cool too, right? You're on the same start line as the world champion. Wow. Right? And you line up the same, like, 
you're 10 people back from the world. You know, like you're all, you're all there. And they say go, and you all go off at the same time. Of course, he, he's, he or she is moving much faster than you. But, yeah, it's cool. It's cool. Yeah, especially that 24-hour one. There are people who go out, and they'll do like a lap or two, and then they just sit on an obstacle and help people over. Oh, wow. Yeah, so the, the short course world championship, you're not allowed to receive external help. Okay. The ultra distance ones, a lot of times, the community will, uh, people will just sit at obstacles and pull, help pull people over oh, on like cool. the really hard ones. They have one that's called Everest. It's like a quarter pipe okay. or the warped wall. It's kind of like the warped wall from Ninja Warrior where people will stand up there and they will help pull people up. It's super wow, that's neat. Yeah, super cool. Yeah, very cool. The trigger word a couple times, mm. Ninja Warrior. My so, favorite. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I don't think anybody has an idea. You know, we've all seen it on yeah. television, but never ever have I met somebody who actually has been there, done that, and continues to do it. Yeah. So if you can't tell us about how you got into it, tell us the insights, you know, with Ninja Warrior, how you trained for it, how you got involved with it, and co yeah. the uh, competitive side. So Ninja Warrior is an application process. They open up an application every year online. You fill out a, it's long, it's like a job application. It takes probably an hour of typing and filling in all the details about who you are. And then you have to submit a two to three minute video. And then from that, they pick who's competing for that year. Uh, obstacle course racing, there's a lot of crossover. So I would actually say obstacle course racing and Ninja Warrior are the same sport, okay. just at different ends of the spectrum, hmm. right? So you're running on a fixed course, doing obstacles, trying to get to the finish line. Ninja Warrior has essentially no running in between, and ultra-distance obstacle course racing has 24 hours of running at its longest, right? Right. So I am from the far side of it, but I, when I do obstacles, I have to do them, you know, I do a 24-hour race, I'll do 300 obstacles, right? Wow. Uh, and my hands are muddy sometimes, and I'm wet, and sometimes I'm cold, and I'm miserable. Ninja Warrior, you, the obstacles are much more technical, but you only have to do them once. Your hands are dry. There's no running in between. Essentially, you walk right into the next obstacle. Um, so it's a little bit different. A lot of obstacle course racing obstacles, it's static movement. So I have a hold of my last obstacle grip while I'm reaching for the next one. And I transition like that. Versus Ninja Warrior, it's dynamic. So you are letting completely go of your previous obstacle and then grabbing onto the next one. So you're flying through the air. Uh, with obstacle course racing, things don't have to, they're concerned about throughput, so getting a lot of people through. Mm -hmm. uh, the Ninja Warrior can reset after every take of the film, right? So the things are a little more complex. So it's a little bit different, but I would say it is part of the same sport. You apply, uh, you need a hook, call it. You need something that's unique about you. Yeah. Um, so you. So actually, with the couple of years I applied, I showed very little obstacle stuff, like as far as like the ninja obstacles. Okay. I showed the obstacles I do, but I talked about a lot of the charity events I had done and some of the ultra endurance things I had done. And then I also talked about my military service. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how they picked me. Um, so I got picked for the first time in, what was it, 2021. And uh, I'm like, this is my big moment. This is it. I've got all this successful stuff. This is going to go great. I don't think, I don't know if I have the shortest run in Ninja history, but it's got to be close. <laughs> oh, come on. I literally stepped on the first obstacle and just hit it at a wrong angle no. and just like ate it immediately. Oh. Like, Biggest disaster. It's on T, you know, like Ugh. they have it on film and they interview beforehand and they're like, they're like, say you're going to do so. Like, like, <laughs> you know, they're like, they're not telling you what to say, but they, you know, you got to feed them. Huh? Yeah, you got to yeah. feed, right? Like, it's a TV show. They want, they want big talkers and big stories, yes. right? So they, you know, they're like prodding you to like say the, say the big stuff, right? So it's just such a disaster. And I was like, 
I was so upset and so nervous because I don't have any control of what they're going to put out. I'm like, I'm going to look like an idiot. And I was like, all right, whatever. Um, but uh, so that was a disaster. And I went back. I, got, I applied again the next year. I got in. Uh, basically made it to the second obstacle. And same thing for the third year. I had much better performances. Uh, but it was, it's a really cool experience. Uh, we, the, since COVID, they tend to do it all in one location. They used to do it in a bunch of different cities. Okay. And uh, they everyone would kind of go to those cities and film. The last couple of years, they've done a centralized location. So I did uh, one in Se Seattle inside, indoors. They filmed it during the daytime mm -hmm. indoors. I did one in Texas. Again, they filmed it indoors during the daytime. This past year was in Universal Studios oh, um, on the back lot, and it was at night. So they filmed from you know, 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. Oh, and wow. they, uh, one person at a time, there's about 60 to 80 people that run through the course, and you wait backstage. They have like a TV back there so you can watch the runs in like real time, which is kind of cool. And the audience sits there in the middle of the night and tries to be excited in between, <laughs> right? Cause they, they, oh, wow. they, someone falls and then they're like, ah, they sit down all exhausted and then, but they have to perform because they're part of the, they're part of the show. Okay. Um, but it was, it was a really cool experience. The people there were super nice, the, both the staff and the actual competitors. The competitors are genuinely cheering for each other. It is a competition. Sure. Uh, but the competitors want everyone to do their best and succeed. Um, because at the end of the day, it's like really you against the course. Yeah. Supposedly, this, this season has a good end. I don't uh, know the details. Yep. Um, and I wasn't there for the filming of the uh -huh. ending. Um, but it's very few people win huge prize packages. Wow. Um, but it was a, just a really good experience. And When you're backstage and hanging out, and yeah. you're sizing yourself up against the other competitors. I know the competitive side of it is like, oh, there's no way that this person, this person, this person, they're going to outperform me on this. Yeah. You have to have some of that in going through your mind. So I do. I get more of I get less of it for Ninja. I get more of it for ultra distance obstacle courses because okay. that's my primary sport. Gotcha. When I go up to Ninja, I'm typically out of my realm. Um, and the younger kids are just phenomenal. Huh. So these kids have grown up with the sport, right? They didn't start when they were 30. They started when they were six. Sure. So their bodies are built from the ground up for Ninja Warrior. And they can do moves like I mean like one-handed laches where they they swing from one hand, let go of the bar and grab the next oh, one. Oh wow! And like they, they just have very I mean the, the new generation is they've set a, new, a bar that the old generation can't hang with. Um, and I came in I came in at the tail like I'm an older generation guy who who started late in his career like if being 40 and competing in Ninja Warriors on the most of the people are younger than me who are competing. Most of them are 20s. Get some thirties, yeah. So, what are the plans? You gonna to try to get after it again? Yeah, I mean, if they keep accepting me, I'll I'll keep showing up. You know, now, knowing that you've been through it three times, yeah. Are there things when you look back, think, okay, well, I, I could train, I can do different things to better position myself for success, or is it like, well, there's always that level of uncertainty yeah. and really things I can't prepare for. So yeah, you, you can train. So I usually train at a gym called Modus Ninja in Kansas City. They got two locations, great gym, love the owner. They've had a bunch of people be on the show. The problem is I don't, that's not local. It's two hours from here, right? right? So the hard part is if you live locally to a ninja gym, it's a lot easier to train more frequently. Like I have a, my garage is essentially turned into a gym. I have a three car garage that's I mean, like a treadmill, bicycle, and then like martial arts area, and then a rig going across the ceiling. And then at one point I had pegboard across the board wall and a wow. traverse wall the ninja stuff is 
very, as I mentioned, very dynamic. So the moves are a lot bigger. So it's a little less convenient to do in your garage, especially as a military guy when I move every three years. It's like, right. cool, I'll just rebuild this thing that took me two years to build. Oh. Um, so I lose a little. My, my Ninja Gym slash OCR Gym gets a little less impressive every time we move because my the motivation <laughs> drops a tiny bit to rebuild. But yeah, you can train uh, sports specificity. When I, t when I talk about training with people, I always say, regardless of your sport, there's three things you need. You need specificity. So whatever your sport is you're doing, that's what you need to practice because you're going to get better at what you practice. It has to be progressive. So it has to get harder as you get better. People who do a lot of body weight exercises tend not to make it progressive. If you do weights, it's pretty easy to go progressive. I just grab the next mm -hmm. heavier set. Um, and then it has to be enjoyable. Because if it's, if it's not enjoyable, you're not going to put effort into it. Sure. You could can, can have the best example is diet is a perfect one. You can have the, literally the perfect diet for losing weight, but if you're not enjoying yourself, it is not going to be sustainable and you will not stick to it. Right? So the same right. thing goes with physical training. So you need to be some level of enjoyment. Do I enjoy every mile repeat I do? I don't. Do I enjoy every 20 mile run? Not really, <laughs> but I enjoy the end product I get from it, right? Yeah, so yeah. Sp specific, progressive, and enjoyable. Absolutely. And that yeah. can, you can apply that to literally every part of your life, you know, uh, whether it be whatever your hobby may be, right? Building model cars or podcasting or videotaping or video editing, whatever. Sure, yeah. You have so many things going on, right? I do. You know, you're wearing that S again, <laughs> so. You're a soldier, yes. you're a husband, you're a dad, competing in the OCR competitions, done American Ninja Warrior three times. Then also in your spare time, rumor has it you put out a, a couple books and maybe might be another one coming out soon. So if you can, tell us a little bit about the books, uh, what are the topics, what got you inspired to write these books? Give us some yeah. insights on this. I had bounced around, I mentioned, like, with a whole bunch of different sports. So I got to see a, little, a bunch of examples of like, models of success from different sports. So when I transitioned to obstacle course racing, the sport was relatively new. I think I uh, essentially three years old when I had gotten into the sport. And I looked at what other sports and athletes were doing to essentially make money or reduce costs from training or from racing and competing. And I was like, well, I should just do that for obstacle course racing. I was like, I should write a book. It's like, there's no books on obstacle. There's very few at the time. And I was like, I've been training for, you know, physical training for 15 years at that point. Like, I, I can write a book. So I just sat down and started writing. It started off as a strength and endurance book because before I found obstacle course racing, I was alternating, like, marathon running for four months, triathlon for four months, and then I would switch to something strength-based, okay. like powerlifting for four months and then natural bodybuilding for four months. So I learned a lot of lessons. I got to see a lot of examples of success. Um, and then when I found obstacle course racing, I had been... I diversified my, again, with like SF, uh, jack of all trades, master of none. I fit really well into the sport, and I, I found a lot of success fairly early on without much experience. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a couple of bad races up front, but uh, if you look at my OCR career as a, without looking at the rest of my life as fitness, you'd be like, well, this guy's a natural phenom. It's like, no. It's like I've got 15 or 20 years of failure preceding that. Sure. You're seeing the end state. Sure. So I looked at what other people are doing. There's a famous ultra runner named Dean Karnazes. He wrote a book called Ultra Marathon Man. And uh, I, I know Dean. I've, I've met him at a couple times. Uh, he's, he's got the same nutrition sponsor, Hammer Nutrition. And he, uh, I ran with him during his 50 states, 50 days, 50 marathons. Oh, wow. Uh, I ran in Boston with him. 
and I, I, I basically like stole his model for success. I'm like, I like your model. I'm taking it. It's mine now. <laughs> so his, his name is his Ultra Marathon Man. So when I wrote uh, my book and kind of like developed who I was as a personality in the sport, I was Ultra OCR Man. Neat. And um, started with a training book. Uh, specifically for like a single sa single source for competitive obstacle course racing. So I didn't want to focus on the beginners because other people had put out those books. Um, I was always taught in school, like, you know, don't raise your hand if you're going to say something that everyone else is saying. Like, you get to provide something new to the conversation sure. here. So I started with a uh, competitive obstacle course racing book. It's still the only one. And I wrote it in 2016 with an update in 2021, 20, something like that. Started with there. And I was like, well, that'll be it's just one and done. And then I was like, I, no, I, got, I got some things I can say about this endurance obstacle course racing. So I wrote another book. And then I was like, oh, look at the, let me see what other book, like other running companies are doing. And they're like, oh, they, we've got like a who's who of race companies book for like regular road running. And I was like, I should do that for obstacle course racing. So I wrote one of those. Oh, and then I did one for like a, just a list of workouts. Again, I looked at success at other sports and what they were doing and the books that, were, um, that I perceived were selling or that interested me. And I made the obstacle course racing equivalent of it. And then I did my biography, which covers some of the stories we told today and some of the uh, endurance charity events I've done. Like Dean Karnazes had done with his running, I did the same thing for obstacle course racing. So I, every year uh, for seven years in a row, I set out like a really big goal um, that was not an organized event. And I basically suffered by myself for 24, to, uh, 24 hours to a week, depending on the event. And... Uh, raise money for charity. So the charity I typically partner with was called Folds of Honor. Mm -hmm. They do scholarship money for kids whose parents were killed or wounded in action. Absolutely. Yeah, so. what a great organization. Yeah. You know, looking back, who would have thought that sleep deprivation in ranger school would help you out right now with so many things going on in That's your right. life? That's right. So that, that was a good uh, trait and, and skill to, to learn to, to kind of lead you through to you can do everything. But it's not everything. So I've heard also podcast. Yeah. So, so tell, us, tell us about that. So again, I think uh, obstacle course racing is a new sport, relatively new. It's about 10 years old at this point, a little over. Uh, but sports and fitness is old. Right? Improving, mastering a complex skill is old. I took my interest in other sports and interest in obstacle course racing and started a company called Strength and Speed. So that's my brand, uh, teamstrengthspeed.com. And I basically, I was... I, for my podcast, I would interview primarily obstacle course racers, but people from any sport, and I would steal their lessons learned, right? So if you want great grip strength, maybe you should talk to rock climbers or water skiers. Hmm. If you want to know how to get stronger, maybe I should talk to, um, you know, strength athletes, powerlifters, strongmen. If you, want, if you want a lean physique, right, because that's going to be more efficient for racing, like it doesn't help to carry fat um, on a racing course, you talk to the nutrition of a bodybuilder or a fitness uh, competitor. So that's what I did, and I put out over about 200 episodes. I had a co-host for a while, uh, just coordinating schedules. She was great, but uh, our, our schedules eventually just didn't match up. So it was, now it tends to be me. I've been focusing a lot on I've got some, a lot of martial artists on recently. It kind of flows with whatever I'm interested in, but the idea is I take a complex skill from someone, uh, share their story. I try to empower the athletes. I try to do primarily athletes and less race directors, although I have had a couple of race directors on and allow them to tell their story and steal their lessons learned. And then I used, again, I used their lessons learned to write another book called On Endurance. I took lessons learned from about 200 podcast episode and wrote like a step-by-step -step guide for improving endurance. And it, uh, I think it came out really good. It's short, it's like 100 pages, quick read. 
Yeah. yeah, I think it's just you know amazing, you know, all the things that that you've accomplished, you know, all the obstacles that you've overcome, you know, throughout life, and then to have such success and everything, looking back on everything that you've done. Yeah, and, and I think it's it's built upon a mountain of failures. I'll say that there. You know, like. Sure. Uh, you get to see the end product, but I've, I've tried so many different things and just failed at so many different things. Right. So. But the master has failed more times than the beginner has even tried. Sure. And I think that's really accurate. And the, you know, the appearance of success um, is just uh, someone who didn't give up. Yeah, absolutely. Just, again, I wasn't a great athlete, but I was so persistent for so long. I've been, I ran my first marathon in 2003, and we're 20 years later, almost to the day. It'll be like next month. It built a lot of endurance in my body, and my, I, can, I can do things that most people think are impossible. Yeah. That's awesome. So. Yeah. No, I, I can't thank you enough, you know, for taking the time to, to be here today. You know, I have so much respect for you, one, as a member serving our country and all the sacrifices that you have made for us and our nation. Um, two, for somebody who never quits. You know, I love that. No matter what uh, obstacles there or set of adversities that you encounter, you find a way to find a solution to succeed. Yeah. And I think that speaks volumes. That's kind of the, the DNA between our Patriot Group <clears throat> and then our company with Firm Credit Service of America and Frontier Firm Credit. You know, we embody that of trying to make a difference. You know, our customers are constantly faced with different challenges and we do an exceptional job, I feel, trying to find solutions for them. Mm. So at the end of the day, they can be successful. And I'm very thankful organizationally that they support us that they give us ERGs, um, that we have community support, involvement, outreach. And thank you for, you know, partnering with us, and especially as we lean into this, you know, stair climb, you know, tomorrow. So thank you so much. My it's pleasure, an absolute Chris. pleasure to, to sit here and learn more about yourself. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, man. Thank you. Wow, what an incredible story. Thank you to everyone for taking the time to learn about Evan's story. If you'd like to learn more about the Patriot ERG, visit the Patriot SharePoint page by typing Patriot into the search bar on Access America. You can also click the Join button on the Patriot Viva Engage to stay up to date with the latest updates. Thank you for joining us today on the Patriot Podcast. Have a great day. Yeah.